I was approached last Wednesday night and said, you do this on Sunday, why don't you do it on Wednesday? Have people stand in honor to the reading of the Word of God. So here we are. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. I think this is the sweetest conclusion that God could have chosen to, to end, to round off the Ten Commandments. I think he saved the best till last. And I want to talk to you tonight about discovering real contentment. And what an awesome finish to the Ten Commandments that God made. The first four having to do with our relationship with him, the latter six having to do with our relationship with one another. And this right here to me is just the icing on the cake, that if you embrace the Ten Commandments and the principles that they teach, you can find real contentment. Everybody say amen. amen. Thank you for standing. God bless you. You may be seated. Some time ago, Milton Bradley released a game called Mall Madness. It's a board game similar to Monopoly. Here's their description. Is Milton Bradley's description. <clears throat> Will... You be the first to lose your money. You, let, you are let loose in a shopping mall with $200. Go to it and spend all of it. Empty your pockets first and you will win the game. When, you're, when you've spent every cent that you have, your marker moves triumphantly into the winner's space labeled broke and you win. What a game. The sad part about that is that for some folks, that's not a game. That's just kind of how they live their life. Um, this game even features an electronic voice that announces sales and clearances and even credit cards so you can even plunge yourself deeper into debt as you play. A recent survey of female teenagers discovered that 93% of them said their number one favorite pastime was shopping. Sorry to the young teenage fellas, but it beat out dating by a long shot. That these young teenage girls that were surveyed would far rather shop than date. Just saying. <clears throat> One husband said, if my wife doesn't go out shopping at least three times a week, I send her a get well card. <clears throat> Today we're going to talk about contentment. And its negative counterpart, coveting. Coveting is a word that isn't used much anymore, but we encounter its effects hundreds of times a day in our materialistic society. Never before have people been as pushed to possess as we are. Marketing research is a billion-dollar-year business, and thousands of people spend 40 hours a week designing ways to trigger our buying mechanisms using music, images, slogans, fear, nostalgia, pride, jealousy, even sex to attract our attention. Their ultimate goal, though, is to impair our self-control just long enough for us to decide that we simply must have that product. They're trying to make us covet. According to the Educational Forum, the typical American consumer is the recipient of some 3,000 advertisements a day. The general message in this merchandising is 
that all of our problems can be solved immediately by the consumption of that particular product that we are watching the or listening to the advertisement for. Our culture actually discourages the idea of contentment. People aren't continually bombarded with a message, what you have isn't enough, you need more, a bigger house, a better car, a larger salary, even whiter teeth, fresher breath. I concur to some of these. Nicer clothes and so on. The list is endless. There are no surveys indicating that people are any happier with more stuff. Nobody has been able to conclude that the more you have, the happier you are. One interviewer asked several instant millionaires, how many of you are happier today? Not one responded positively. As a matter of fact, one winner replied, every time you get something nicer, it isn't good enough because you want something even nicer than that. So tonight, what is coveting? Coveting is the uncontrolled desire to acquire. The uncontrolled desire to acquire. The impulse for wanting is a very necessary part of a human being, and without this particular form of energy, people would be inactive and unmotivated. However, it's also true that human nature desires more than it needs. That is true. You know, if you go into the animal and plant world, they function, and and God designed it this way, it functions automatically to take care of their environment or take from their environment only what they need to survive. There are clear limits to their acquisitions and It's dictated by instinct, but not so with humans. When a journalist asked the late John D. Rockefeller how much wealth was enough, the millionaire who was at that time one of the richest and most powerful men in the world answered just a little bit more. So coveting is serious business with God. And it's because it's one of the most complex and grievous of sins. The Bible lists it with vile passions and warns that unrepented covetousness will exclude a person from going to heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, But know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Coveting is what you might call a seed sin. A seed sin. Because it can quickly lead to other sins. In fact, the Bible tells us that coveting was the original sin behind the fall of mankind. In Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, the Bible said, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eye and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Both Old and New Testaments point out very clearly that coveting is the root of many forms of sin, including lying, theft, domestic trouble, murder, lust, greed, envy, jealousy, and you could even go on beyond that. But all of these sins were the byproduct and began with coveting. These are all manifestations of desire that's run amok. Does it really happen? Yes, it does. A number of years ago, a woman named Wanda Holloway 
pled no contest to solicitation of capital murder. All she wanted was for her teenage daughter to achieve her dream of becoming a cheerleader. But Miss Holloway actually paid a hitman to kill Verna Heath, the mother of her daughter's chief rival for the coveted position on the cheerleading squad using diamond earrings as a down payment. By the time she pled no contest to the crime, Wanda had already spent six years of a 15-year prison sentence. Legally, Wanda Holloway is guilty of solicitation of capital murder. Morally, she's guilty of coveting. Mrs. Holloway determined to get what she wanted for her daughter, even if it meant selling out her own soul. One student at Harvard University coveted a particular roommate so badly that when she was rebuffed, she stabbed the young woman 45 times before hanging herself. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, homicide is now the second leading cause of death in the workplace, and a number of such homicides are committed by employees exacting revenge after being passed over for a promotion that they coveted. The Hebrew word for covenant, covet in this command, means to desire with the intent to own something that can never be rightfully yours. I want to say that again. The definition for covet in the Old Testament means to desire with the intent to own something that can never rightfully be yours. So that's why the commandment specifies don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's farm animals, and so on. There are some things that you can never legitimately possess. Every adulterous affair is rooted in covetousness, which is, in its simplest form, wanting something at someone else's expense. Coveting is a powerful and underestimated sin that can cripple you spiritually and and can ultimately destroy you, and yet it's hard for in our culture to be content with what you have. America is just not a place that's structured in its culture for people to be content with what you have. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the Bible said, For the love of money, not money, but the love of it, is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I had a conversation with someone after church this past Sunday. We were about the same age and had very similar upbringings. Neither his family nor mine uh, had a lot of money in it. And... Uh, think he might have millions and millions of dollars but I still don't uh, despite what folks sometimes want to think but we talked about growing up and and especially compared to the society we live in now and I'm not sure I want to go back to the days where I grew up uh, part of me does part of me does not but uh, I remember the only two times we got anything throughout the year that was special that could be prized was a birthday gift and a Christmas present. And usually from my parents, it was only one of each. And when it was birthday time, I got one present from them, and that was it. And at Christmas time, I got one, and that was it. Um, now, I got Christmas presents from other members of the family, but as far as my parents goes, there's just not the money for that. And so none of the children in my family were lavished on that, except my sister. She got whatever she wanted. But anyway, it's another conversation for another time. But um, anyway, uh, 
I remember the last bicycle that, that I remember getting from my dad and mom when he was living. I'll never forget his words. He said, you take care of this bicycle, boy. This is the last one you're getting. And I was trained that way. I was taught that way all of my life, that whatever you're given, you take care of it as though it's the last one you will ever get. And uh, I even remember, some of you will remember, of course, I grew up in the First Pentecostal Church of Baton Rouge. And when I was a kid, around Christmas time, they always gave a gift to everyone that came for their designated Christmas service. And that gift was a baggie. Uh, with an orange and an apple and two or three peppermints in it, and I couldn't wait till after church to run up there and get my bag. And I didn't eat it. I very rarely ate what was in it. I just wanted it because it was free. And it was a gift, I, I guess. I read a statement this week, and it has just really, it has just really dominated my thinking, and I, I've not been able to get it off of my mind. Somebody said one time, there's been times in my life when I had lack of money, but I have never been poor. And that's the way I feel about it. Never had a lot of money, but I've never been poor either. Because there are some things that have a greater value than what money can buy. And a family, a relationship with God and family stands obviously at the top of that list. Let me tell you the way covetousness will affect uh, let me let me give you the effects of, of 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 always wanting more when you always covet when you're always looking at that car going by you on the highway or person you goes to church with you get a new car and they get a new car and you say man i'd like to have a car i'd like to have that car what have you let me tell you what it does to you number one it causes fatigue in our push to get more we overlook ourselves and we take on second jobs that is real prevalent in our society here uh, in America, that what you make on your regular 8-to-5 job isn't enough money, so we say to make ends meet. We need that second job. I don't discount that in every case, but I do know in a lot of cases we really don't need the second job because we have lack or we stand in a place of want. But we just want more. We want more. We can't adjust our budgets to what we make. We have to earn what we set our budget at. It's kind of set backwards to me. But uh, everybody in the family works just to keep up in the material rat race. As a result, everyone is tired and cranky. The wise man said, labor not to be rich. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. The second thing that... Um, the five effects of always wanting more. The second thing is debt. Coveting wreaks havoc with budgets. We think the problem is that we don't make enough, but the real problem is that we want too much. The average North American puts more than $1,300 on credit cards for every $1,000 that they make. So you go into debt $300 with each transaction. That's called deficit spending. Our federal government does that, and it's not working too good. As a matter of fact, we're at a point now, $20 trillion in debt. I don't know how they'll ever come out of it uh, without just calling bankruptcy and tell China and Japan and the other countries that keeps us propped up, sorry, we just can't pay you back. God help us if that ever happens. 
So where our country, our federal government especially, has set precedent for deficit spending, we all know in your private domestic household deficit spending, it don't take long for it to catch up. Anybody say amen to that? A lot of what we call need is really greed. The Tenth Commandment deals directly with the problem we have today of distinguishing between needs and wants. It's the keeping up with the Joneses mentality. We spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need, to impress people we don't like. That'll almost make you want to get up and run the aisles. It is so true. Amen. And it is true. If the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, just know that the water bill is more expensive on the other side of the fence too. The wise man said in Ecclesiastes, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The Living Bible Translation said, the more you have, the more you spend, right up to the limits of your income. So what is the advantage of wealth except perhaps to watch it as it runs through your fingers? And uh, the wise man very aptly describes the condition. The third effect of always wanting more is worry. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. How am I going to protect it, save it, invest it, insure it, repair it, maintain it, avoid taxes on it, and keep from losing it? Everybody get that? I think that one can be on the screen, maybe. How am I going to protect it, save it, invest it, insure it, repair it, maintain it, avoid taxes on it, and keep from losing it? The higher you rise on the corporate ladder, the more likely you are to bring work and job frustrations home with you and stress out about it. One study said insomnia increases with income. Even the wise man said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer or allow him to sleep. That's Bible. The fourth effect is conflict. There's no place harder hit by covetousness than in the home. The number one cause of divorce in America is financial tension, arguments over money and possessions. Most married couples choose to call it incompatibility. We're not compatible. The root problem is that we're not compatible on how we're going to spend the money. Conflict comes when we always want more and the children always suffer the most. James said in his epistle, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? One translation said, Why do you fight and argue with each other? Isn't it because you are full of selfish desires that fight to control your body? And the fifth effect of always wanting more is dissatisfaction. Things can bring happiness for a while. I love the comedian that uh, repeated the slogan of a very famous jeweler one time. He said, when you give your spouse a diamond, you can render her speechless. I agree with his interpretation. Give her a diamond and I'll shut her up for a minute anyway <laughs> until she decides she wants something. I thought it was pretty funny. I, people are standing there. 
But I thought it was kind of cute anyway. Things can bring happiness for a while, but the excitement soon wears off and we get bored with it. Why don't things keep you permanently happy? Have you ever thought about that? Why can't you get something that makes you happy and then that thing comes, becomes a source of happiness for the rest of your life? It's because things don't change, but humans do. Pretty soon, and I, I've, I've seen it happen, and, and Brother Tom loves it when this happens, Pretty soon people you know, build a new home, they get new furniture, and they decorate, and they do all this kind of stuff, and pretty soon after a few years they don't like it no more. And he likes that because they call him back. Come make it pretty again, but make it a different kind of pretty, a look different kind of pretty. Pretty soon we have to redecorate and remodel and repair and replace or at least rearrange. That rearranging furniture, it's hard on folks that get up at night and have to move around the house. You forgot the couch got moved and you trip over it and about break your neck. How many of you are still thrilled about the Christmas gift you got last year? Nobody? Not even one? Wow. All right, next question. How many of you even remember what you got for Christmas last year? <laughs> if you could remember, you might could draw a little happiness out of it, right? You sold it in this past summer's garage sale. That's what happened. I hope everybody gets a point. Look, I'm not anti-people having possessions, but I believe there's a priority and there's a principle that God is trying to say here. So what's the antidote to coveting? The antidote to coveting is contentment. And contentment is something you have to learn. Everybody say learn. There's a discipline involved in contentment. There's an accountability involved in being content. There's a responsibility it doesn't come naturally. Contentment does not come automatically. Have you ever noticed that in your kids? They're happy for a little while, but it's not very long until they're ready to move on to something else. None of us are by nature contented people. Paul said, Now that I speak in respect of want or lack, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And I know both how to be a base and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned. It's a behavior that you learn. Paul learned through his experiences that contentment is not related to circumstances. Though I be in want or a place of abundance, I'm still content whether I've been abased or whether I've been promoted. I've, I've learned to be content. Contentment is not passive or lazy. It is not the absence of ambition. Instead, contentment means that at every stage of your life, your happiness is measured by an appreciation for what you have and not postponed by dwelling on an inventory of what you are missing. Single people struggle with this. People single that that want relationship. Uh, People who uh, may live in an apartment and want to own a house or people who drive a small economical car that wants to drive uh, some luxurious car. It, it, it has to do with, with, with folks that, 
that you don't you just don't have what you want and you're not contented. The Bible teaches against that mentality. There may be a purpose for you being where you're at. There may be a God reason for you to be where you are. There may be some things that you need to learn. There's some things out of life you need to glean. And patience, in this case, is a virtue. So let me say again, commitment is not being passive nor lazy. It's not the absence of ambition. Instead, contentment means that at every stage of your life, your happiness is measured by an appreciation for what you have and not postponed by dwelling on an inventory of what you are missing. I don't believe it hurts that no matter what state we're in, that once in a while you throw your face up towards heaven and say, God, I'm thankful for what I have. And I want to say again, there's been times in my life when there's been a lack of money, but I've never been poor. I've always had something to be thankful for. So I want to give you four ways tonight to conquer coveting. Number one is to resist comparing yourself to others. Comparing always leads to coveting. If you're comparing yourself with others, God says that you just create dissatisfaction within. One of the greatest lessons you can learn is to be able to admire without having to acquire. If the only things in life you enjoy are the things you own, um, you're, you're going to be a miserable a lot of your life because you can't own everything. I want to say that again. If the only things in life you enjoy are the things you own, you're going to be miserable a lot of your life because you can't own everything. Contentment can't be based on what you always possess. We don't, why do we constantly compare anyway? Because the way we keep score in our society is by possessions. We're insecure, so we're always looking around and asking, how am I doing compared to, and you fill in the blank. But net worth absolutely has no relation to self-worth. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. To put it in short, we do not compare ourselves among ourselves. You don't measure you who you are by the standard of who someone else is. Neither do you measure who you are by what you possess compared to by the standard of what someone else is and what someone else possesses. You can be possessed by your possessions, sacrificing values, morals, integrity, and even relationships just to obtain more things. Paul said, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Ahab in the Old Testament coveted Naboth's vineyard. David coveted Uriah's wife. Saul coveted David's popularity. Miriam coveted Moses' ministry. What do you covet? It's an important question to answer. The Bible said, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. So the second way you can conquer coveting is to rejoice in what you have. None of us would have anything if it were not for the goodness of God. Nobody here tonight would have anything. Nobody on this planet would have anything that were not for the goodness of God. God has set precedent many times in Scripture, and even in our own lives, that He can choose to bless or He can choose to take away. It's all up to Him. I thank God for His kind consideration. 
He wants us to enjoy what He has given us. He wants us to enjoy what He has blessed us with. And you know, I, th- I think about the family thing, and in light of the Scripture, the, the, co- the commandment that we read tonight, to not covet your neighbor's wife. If you don't like your wife or your husband, don't blame God and then start coveting someone else's husband or wife. You married the person. You picked them. Live with it. I'm not looking in that direction for any particular reason. Just, okay. But if the shoe fits somewhere over there, I guess wear it, I don't know. But all of us are guilty of falling into the trap of when and then thinking, which says when I get, then I'll be happy. And it's faulty logic because things never satisfy. People who marry to be happy, people who have children to be happy, people who live in a house to be happy and to work a certain job to be happy, it's a misnomer. It's a deception. Happiness comes from within. And when you learn to be secure in your own skin and you learn who you are and you be comfortable with your own identity, then you can pursue happiness. You'll never find it totally and completely in anyone or anything else ever. Amen. I feel like we need to pick up another offering after that statement right there. That's pretty cool right there. There's two ways to have enough in life. It's to either get more or want less. There's two ways to have enough. It's two ways to have enough. You either get more or want less. Does that make sense to everybody? The Bible said better in the, is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. One translation said it's better to enjoy what we have than to always want something else because that makes, us, makes no more sense than changing the changing of the wind. And then the third way to conquer coveting is to release what I have to help others. God doesn't want to just bless you for your own benefit. He wants you to share your blessing to help others. He's watching you to see what you give away. Paul said, charge them that are rich in this world that they should not be high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they uh, be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. This verse is talking to those who are rich. And I have news for everybody here tonight, everybody in this building. According to our world standards, North Americans are in the top 2% income of the world. There's people here in America that live full-time on government entitlements. You're still more rich than the other 98% of the people who live on this planet. It's possible to be rich. Is it possible, let me say, excuse me, is it possible to be rich and not be materialistic? Yes, because materialism is an attitude, not an amount. People can be materialistic and not have two nickels to rub together. But it's also possible for people to be extremely wealthy and to be kind and generous and humble in what God has blessed them with. Don't ever become proud of your wealth 
and don't put trust in it. Use your blessing from God to do good and give cheerfully, give happily. Giving is the cure for materialism, not giving with bias and ulterior motive and not giving to get, but just to give out of the abundance of which God has blessed you with. In Acts chapter 20, the Bible said, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the fourth way to conquer coveting is to refocus on what, on what's going to last. Everything earthly, everything earthly is temporary. I mentioned several weeks ago that I've, I've had some interest recently in the Roman Empire, the Grecian Empire. don't know why, I just have. I think a lot about the Roman government. They were so widespread, essentially from Great Britain almost to China. They conquered that known part of the world. Uh, the famous uh, Grecian uh, emperor Alexander, Y'all know the story. He put his foot on a rock and wept because there was no more lands that he could reach that he could conquer. But I've had interest in all these different domains, especially those that are, are biblical, especially the Romans. They're the ones that crucified Jesus. And I think it's important sometimes for us to consider the kind of mentality that those people had to be so barbaric towards such a good man, towards such a kind man. But when you study those those moments of history and you look at all the temples and buildings that were erected very few of them are even in existence today but back in that time frame it was everything you can go all across europe and you can look at things that, that are left over from from a thousand fifteen hundred and even two thousand years ago i've stood on mars hill where paul preached in the book of acts i've been there um you, but you have all of these things that people built and these monuments that people built. And now tourists travel in those parts, and unless somebody really explains who those people are and why they built it, they don't get the significance of it anymore. The monument outlived its purpose. It outlived its meaning. And I'm, I, I'm reminded often when I study those kind of things that even the things that we're building, there will come a day when this church building won't be here anymore. These chairs won't be here anymore. The carpet won't be in here. All the technology won't be here anymore. I believe it's important for us to focus on things that are going to last. And Jesus encouraged that when he said to put your, your heart into spiritual things, eternal things. Don't put your, your treasure into things where moth and rust doth corrupt. For where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. Everything earthly is temporary, and we must give our attention to permanent values and reorganize our life around eternal priorities. Paul said, while we look at things that are seen, excuse me, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but things which are not seen are eternal. The worst thing about materialism is that it clouds our vision of God, and we begin to think that all there is really to life is getting and enjoying things, and our perspective gets warped. Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. So I challenge you tonight to challenge the myth that says having more will make you more happy. 
You have to make a choice. Is my lifestyle going to be determined by our culture here in America or by Christ? What's really important in light of eternity? What do I talk about the most? What do I spend the most time on? What am I really living for? So why is the sin of covetousness mentioned in God's Ten Commandments last? Perhaps because this sin is capable of producing the downward slippery slope that leads to any of the first nine sins that were mentioned. Virtually all sins begin with this one. When we covet, we are questioning God's fairness in our lives and demonstrating a lack of faith in Him. The Tenth Commandment is a final exclamation point on the First Commandment that just says, Let God be God. You know, one day in heaven, somewhere in eternity past, Lucifer coveted God's position and and sought to take it for himself. He fell then, but now attempts to do the same thing through encouraging mankind to sin and become gods unto themselves, and it's the wrong kind of of Covington. Listen to Pastor tonight in conclusion. The Bible teaches us that God wants us to covet some things with a passion. This is a kind of desire that makes life worthwhile. And this right kind of coveting does not take away from nor diminish anyone else. In fact, others benefit when we covet the things of God. Others benefit as well as we when we covet the things of God. David said in the psalm that most of us could quote here tonight, he said, One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I want to submit to you tonight, and I I believe this is a, a beautiful, wonderful commandment when it's obeyed. Because when we're obeying it, we're living right. When we obey this commandment, it's not going to be hard to to obey the previous nine. And that's why I introduced it the way I did. It's a beautiful commandment. Yes, it's cautionary. Yes, it challenges us to have the right attitude about worldly things, even about others' possessions. But when we truly possess, want to possess more of God, more of the time, for more of the right reason, then our lives become truly satisfied and contented And the people who live around us will also enjoy that contentment. I've often pondered what would it be like if people put at least a tithe of time into their relationship with God compared to the hours that they work every week. All of us here tonight in this this room have lived long enough to understand that you work and 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 things still break and you lose possession of things and you have to sell things, you have to trade things off and you have to throw things out by the curb. And we realize over and over and over again that of all the things that we buy, as I asked you a little while ago, is your last year's Christmas present keeping you happy? Are you still drawing happiness from it? No one raised their hand. And I would dare say that you'd probably have to stop and think a little while to even remember what you got for Christmas last year. And it illustrates the point. I can truthfully tell you, and I'm I'm probably the most blessed man on the planet, and I truly feel that way. God took a life of a young man that took a hold of a life of a young man that just really didn't have a whole lot going for him. And he made something out of me. And he's blessed me with a lot of great things. 
But the greatest thing I possess tonight is my relationship with Him. Because it's not earthly. Yes, it helps me on this planet. But that relationship, hopefully, Lord willing, is going to take me to another place. And it's going to be worth the trip. I would like for everyone here tonight, especially in this Christmas season, don't pine over what you can't have for Christmas. And don't pine over what you can't afford. And don't weep and cry over what's not yours that someone else has. Learn to be content with what you do have. It's a learned behavior. I'm not here to pat myself on the back or give myself any kind of a glorified attaboy. But I'll tell you this. I drive down my I drive in my vehicle often. I walk in my house often. Virtually daily. I'm not gonna say every day, but just about every day. And I'll just utter out of my lips, God, I'm thankful. Thankful for family. Thankful for church. Thankful for you. Sister Murphy asked me today, uh, or yesterday, she said, what do you want for Christmas? I don't really want or need anything. I'm not trying to sound hoity-toity or frivolous here tonight. I mean it. We've had that conversation before. I, I don't know. I I decided this past Thanksgiving if I could just have all of my family with me for Thanksgiving Day, and we did. We pulled that off in Gatlinburg. It was a great moment. I, I think of it often. Had Sister Murph was there, and Chris and Casey, and Noah and Joseph, and Marcus and Cassie, and we were sitting in a little bitty cabin. Had to drag a table in from outside to have enough room for everybody to sit, but it was okay. It's the greatest possession I have, man. And I'm thankful for that. I do have fond memories, and I'm, I'm closing. I have fond memories of walking in on my children, two children, when they were babies, and <clears throat> walking up to their baby bed when they were sleeping and thinking, God, why me, man? Beautiful kids, and goodness, uh, <clears throat> I've had many moments, even in ministry, when we had no money. There's been times when I've had no money, but I've never been poor. Always been a rich man. <clears throat> but not rich in the way North American culture measures wealth. I'm rich in my relationship with God, and I still want more of that. And I'm rich in family. I'm rich in friends. I'm rich in the church. And I thank God for you tonight. Thank God for all of you, and thank you for what you bring to my life personally and to my family. Thank you for your kindness and your generosity. <clears throat> I love Grace Church and I'm very thankful for it. Stand with me tonight and let's give God a moment of thanksgiving. Would you truly be thankful for a moment tonight in dismissal? Would you thank God for what you have? Jesus, tonight we're thankful. I stand here tonight a grateful man. <clears throat> I stand here tonight a thankful man. And yes, worldly wise... Wealth-wise, there's a lot of things I don't have. But, God, there's so many things I do have that even wealthy people would give anything for. I'm thankful for my relationship with you, with this church, with our families. I'm thankful, God, for all of your generous and kind blessing throughout the year. 
I'm thankful, God, for the abundance in which you've blessed this church every day, the people that attend it, the people that are a part of it. And I pray, God, that your blessings would be poured out and bestowed generously in 2017 as the Lord tarries. We're asking you, God, to be mindful of our thankfulness and our gratitude of all you've done, and we praise you in Jesus' name. God bless you tonight. If you're thankful for those that are here tonight, won't you express that to them tonight before you leave? I'm thankful you're here. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight. You're dismissed, and we'll see you Sunday.